Uh, good morning to each of you. As I look out, I see a few unfamiliar faces. A, a warm welcome to you. It's great to have you with us. I invite everyone to turn in God's Word to the book of Galatians chapter 5. We've been making our way through this book for some months now. We had a, a bit of a pause over the Christmas season, but are back now. And we're going to pick it up where we left off in the, in the fifth chapter. And to prepare us for what is coming, I want to share with you a few words from William Hendrickson. That might be a name known to some of you. He is a famous New Testament commentator. And in his commentary on Galatians and this particular portion, he writes the following. The Christian religion resembles a narrow bridge over a place where two polluted streams meet. So just pause for a moment. You can reflect on your life, your experience, and perhaps you can think of an occasion when you have traversed a creek, a ravine, or something over a narrow bridge or over a plank or a fallen tree or something, and you have dared to venture out upon that narrow passage and if you had slipped to the left, down you would have gone into the water below. If you had slipped to the right, down you would have gone. That is the mental image that William Hendrickson presents for us. And he is asking us to imagine uh, ourselves on this plank, if you like, on this narrow walkway. And beneath it, two polluted streams meet. One is called legalism. The other is called libertinism. Oh, the believer must not lose his balance. He must not lose his balance, lest he tumble, tumble into the one or the other. The believer must tread the safe and narrow path. Tread safely, carefully, cautiously across this narrow bridge over these two polluted streams. On the one hand, legalism, and on the other hand, libertinism. The Apostle Paul speaks to both in his epistle to the Galatians, the fifth chapter. You look with me at the very first verse. He speaks to the issue of legalism. He writes, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The Lord Jesus fulfilled the law. The Lord Jesus obeyed God. The Lord Jesus earned salvation, merited salvation, God's forgiveness for us. The Lord Jesus paid the penalty for the law. God's command to us is look to the Lord Jesus. God's command to us is believe in the Lord Jesus. And believing in Him, we become united to Him. Having become united to Him, God reckons Christ's work to us. And He sees us as having fulfilled the law, its obligation. And He sees us as having paid its penalty, death upon the cross. And He sees us in this light because we're one with Jesus Christ. Oh, and Paul is so clear here. Away then, just perish this thought. Perish, the, perish this notion that salvation might finally be contingent upon something in you. No, my friend, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, 
and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He speaks to the issue of legalism. And in the 13th verse, he speaks with equal clarity and fervency to the issue of libertinism. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use it as an excuse to sin. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Oh, there is so much confusion regarding this in our day. So many professing believers running around thinking, assuming, concluding that Christian liberty, Christian freedom is the liberty to do whatever I please. We're no longer under law. That is a complete misrepresentation of the Christian faith. Christian freedom is not the liberty to do whatever you please. Christian freedom is the liberty to do whatever God pleases. Christian liberty is actually the freedom to obey the law. Christian liberty, Christian freedom is now actually the ability, the freedom, the liberty to gaze upon God's word and with our minds discern what it is God wants from me and to be inclined in our hearts toward it and to actually obey it. Oh, please hear this and make no mistake. The free Christian is the obedient Christian. The free Christian is the submissive Christian. The free Christian is the man, the woman, the boy, the girl who cries out, not my will, but thine be done. And it is what Paul gets very specific in the verses I just read. He tells us that true Christian freedom is the liberty to deny the flesh. He says that in verse 13. It is the liberty to serve the church, one another, right at the end of verse 13. It is the liberty to fulfill the law, to love one another, our neighbor as ourselves. in verse 14. And it is the liberty to keep the peace in the 15th verse. Simply put, true Christian freedom is the liberty to put away selfishness and actually live a selfless life. That is true Christian freedom. It begs an obvious question, well, how can I do that? How can we possibly do that as believers? And Paul gives an answer beginning in verse 16. Follow along now as I read as far as verse 25. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, 
let us also walk by the Spirit. We're going to break this passage. It's a great one, isn't it? We're going to break it into three sections. Today we're going to handle verses 16 through 18, Lord willing, next Sunday. We'll tackle verses 19 through 23, more or less, and two Sundays from now, the 24th and the 25th verses. So our business, our aim today, to make sense of verses 16, 17, and 18. I trust you've come prepared to think. If you have come thinking you can disengage your mind for the next 40 minutes or so, God have mercy on you. Uh, I trust you've come prepared to think and prepared to work through this text. And it is my goal that each and every one of us will understand, understand, I'm after your mind today, will understand Paul's chief point in these verses And how in them we find the answer as to what it means in true Christian living, true Christian freedom, true Christian liberty. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you eight points. I have given you eight beautiful blanks in the sermon notes. And what I'm going to say, eight points correspond to those eight blanks, no surprises. And I'm going to work through these sequentially. We're going to work through these rationally and logically and reasonably as they present themselves in these verses, and we want to be convinced in our minds, understand what Paul is affirming in these verses. Here is point number one, the first thing we must grasp. There is, clearly identified in these verses, there is a sin-desiring principle called the flesh. You need to be clear on that. There is such a thing as a sin-desiring principle or inclination called the flesh. Look at verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. It is a term that Paul uses in this epistle. It is a term he uses widely in just about all of his epistles. What does he mean by it? What is the flesh? Let me remedy an error that has plagued large segments of the church for centuries. He is not talking about our bodies. He is not saying your body is a problem. He is not insinuating that your body is filthy. He is not suggesting for one moment that there is something inherently sinful about your body. That is not what he means by flesh. By flesh, he means human nature. And by human nature, he's thinking primarily of the soul. And by the soul, he is thinking in very simple categories. The mind with which we think, the heart with which we desire, the will with which we choose. And his issue is simply this. As created in the image of God, our nature was made upright. It mirrored the image of God. But by virtue of the fall, the image of God in man was corrupted. That corrupt nature is known as the flesh. What did the devil say to Adam and Eve? In the day you eat thereof, you will be like God. That is the flesh. That is the flesh. Thomas Manton stated it so eloquently. 
When man fell from God, he fell to himself. That's the flesh. He became a lover of himself rather than a lover of God. And it is that principle, that inclination of me, myself, and I. It is that principle of I love myself above all things. It is that insistence that I, I will define my happiness however I please. And God better fit into my box if there is a God. This is the flesh. And the flesh will be satisfied, and the flesh wages war against God and against the Spirit of God in particular. Oh, it is fallen human nature. It is that which is oriented towards self-love, self-autonomy, self-sufficiency, and self-gratification. If you stumbled in here this morning, for whatever reason, you know in your heart of hearts, you really aren't a follower of Christ. You really aren't a Christian. Then this is the starting point for you in terms of true self-understanding and self-realization. It is to recognize who and what you are before God. You are a lover of self who is in direct, direct hostility toward your creator. There is, not even a, there is not a fiber, an iota of love for God in you. No, the flesh is at enmity with God. That's the starting point. That's number one. We need to be clear. There is a sin-desiring principle called the flesh. Here's the second point to make sense of Paul in these verses. There is a God-desiring principle called the Spirit. 16th verse. But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 17th verse, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Even into the 18th verse, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so again, there is a sin-desiring principle called the flesh. It is self-love. There is a God-desiring principle called the Spirit. It is love for God. It comes about how in the experience of a sinner, an individual. How? It's called the new birth. Regeneration. Coming to life. Being raised from death to life. Moving from darkness to light. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 10, describes it as follows. Following, as he quotes from the book of Jeremiah, God speaking, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. It's the new covenant. It's the nature of the new birth. God himself, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write my laws on their hearts. I will rectify what is wrong with their minds and what is wrong with their hearts. They are so self-absorbed. They are so infatuated with themselves, so self-preoccupied. I will implant in them a new principle. I will give them a new inclination. I will give them a new heart. And according to this new inclination, their desire will be for what? For me. And they will be marked by love for me. And there, this great principle will stand, this great inclination that I myself will put into them 
writing it upon the minds and the hearts. And so we have these two over here, a sin-desiring principle called the flesh, and over here, a God-desiring principle called the Spirit. Now, here's the third point we must get. Even as Christians, I'm speaking now to believers, even as Christians who have been born again. So that means we now possess this God-desiring principle called the Spirit. Here's what we must understand. The flesh has not gone away. Here's the third point. We are still susceptible to the flesh. It has not gone away. Self-love has not been completely eradicated. That principle called the flesh, that inclination called the flesh is still alive and well. It means the following. It means that the flesh, so this sin-desiring principle, and the spirit, this God-desiring principle, two principles, are mixed in our minds and in our hearts and in our wills. We are only renewed in part, and after the new birth, the flesh remains. Are you with me? So far, so good. We've got these two principles, and we understand our condition now as Christians. It is what creates such agony, because we realize the flesh will not be completely eradicated until glory. And so we live with this tension right now, don't we? We live caught in this spiritual warfare between the flesh and the spirit. So here's the fourth point. The spirit and the flesh oppose each other. They oppose each other because they are diametrically opposed to each other. And so again, 16th verse, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit opposition and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other. They are antithetical. They are completely opposite. They cannot coexist. They are in this constant conflict, this constant battle. This sin-desiring principle wants to rule and reign. And this God-desiring principle inclination wants to rule and reign. Note the following. The Spirit. The Spirit, this principle, this love for God that exists, it is implanted in the heart of the believer. Its message to us, its desire for us is very simple. Let me summarize it for you as follows. Here it is. The Spirit's message to us, the Spirit's goal for us, the Spirit's, the desires of the Spirit. Here it is. It is always look at Jesus and see his glory. It's a desire. Look at Jesus and see his glory. Listen to Jesus and hear his word. Go to Jesus and have life. Get to know Jesus and taste his gift of joy and peace. Oh, the Spirit is God-exalting. More specifically, the Spirit is Christ-exalting. The desires of the Spirit are enamorated, captured, captivated with the Lord Jesus. Look to Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Go to Jesus. Love the Lord Jesus. 
Not so with the flesh. The message of the flesh is what? No. I will find my happiness elsewhere. I will define my soul's delight and fulfillment and satisfaction in some other place. I may not be denying altogether who the Lord Jesus is or what he has done, but when it comes to how I'm going to define life, when it comes to how I'm going to live, when it comes to how I'm going to make my decisions, my choices, when it comes to my dreams, when it comes to that great principle by which I'm going to be governed by, what will be lurking behind my every decision is simply this. What is in the best interest of that happiness which I have defined for myself ultimately as a lover of self? Shall I give you some examples? Here are some examples. To be happy be happy. I need a good career. That's the flesh. To be happy, I need to be loved. That's the flesh. To be happy, I, I, I need success and notoriety. To be happy, I need peace and quiet. To be happy, I really need ease and comfort. To be happy, I need sexual intimacy. To be happy, I need money, at least some of it. To be happy, I need children. God, I have them, I need them to be happy. To be happy, I need to be admired and esteemed and accepted. To be happy, I need to be in control. To be happy, I need revenge. To be happy, I need to have fun. And on and on and on it goes. Those are the desires of the flesh. And the desires of the spirit are simply these. No, my friend, to be happy, you need Jesus, and that's all you need. That is all you need to be happy, is the Lord Jesus. Oh, to find our delight in Christ. Look at him and see his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. These are the two semi-intact motivational systems with which you live as a Christian. You have on the one hand, I have on the one hand, this sin desiring, this desire for self-exaltation, this principle of self-love called the flesh. And I have, on the other hand, this God-desiring principle called the Spirit. And yes, I have it because I'm born again, but I'm only renewed in part, and the flesh is still alive and well. And now the flesh and the Spirit, oh, there is this constant tug of war, constant opposition. As they struggle with one another, these two principles, these two desires, these two inclinations. And, and it's just this inner, constant inner turmoil. As the one would have its way, insist upon its way, and the other would insist upon its way. Here's the fifth point then, building. And this might be a shocker for some of you. And some of you might need to hear this. Here it is. We're free to follow the Spirit. We are free to follow the Spirit. You don't have 
to follow the flesh. You don't have to give in to the flesh. You don't have to succumb to the flesh, become subservient to the flesh. We are free to follow the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Do you realize that? There are far too many defeatist Christians walking around, perhaps even in our number. And their attitude is simply this, the flesh is too strong. The flesh is too mighty. What's the point? No, my friend, you've misunderstood who you are in Christ. You've misunderstood the significance of the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has set you free. You do not have to listen to the flesh. You do not have to obey the flesh. You are free. This is true Christian freedom. You are free to follow the Spirit. It leads, obviously, then to the sixth point. We must be careful to walk by the Spirit because it won't happen naturally. We must be careful to walk by the Spirit. And so that's the command. Please note it is a command at the start of verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit. And now there's a purpose clause or rather a conclusion, an end in view. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so this is something we consciously do each and every day. This is a decision we make 24-7. We recognize firstly, yes, the reality of the tension between the spirit and the flesh. We recognize secondly, the necessity of effort. We don't walk by the Spirit. We don't subdue the flesh lying on our couch all day. We don't walk by the Spirit and subdue the flesh by living casually and carelessly. We don't walk by the Spirit and mortify the flesh by doing whatever we feel like doing whenever we feel like doing it. No, there is, we acknowledge the reality of the tension. And we acknowledge the necessity of effort. Hear Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Every athlete. We're athletes. And we're running this marathon, this endurance race. And Paul tells us to, to recognize this simple fact, reality, that every athlete exercises self-control in all things. The term self-control in the Greek is agonizomai, from which we get our English term, agony. Meaning what? This self-control is actually what? A not-so-pleasant experience. We are in a grueling race. Oh, the need for us to develop, not simply that kind of a race mindset, but a wartime mentality. We're in a conflict, folks. We're in a battle. And our spiritual battle is not primarily in the first instance against the devil and his hosts. Our spiritual battle and, and, and conflict in the first instance is with the flesh. And it is this great call, this great command to walk 
by the Spirit to such a degree that we do not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so let me speak plainly. Let me speak directly to you. I'm speaking to Christians, professing Christians. And so there you sit. And your mind is starting to work. And you're processing what I'm saying. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, as I think of things and take stock and evaluate my life, I have to kind of admit that, you know, gratifying the desires of the flesh, that's me. That's where I live. Okay? If that's you, it may only be one of you. I just need to speak to you for a moment. You're thinking to yourself, well, that's, that's pretty much where I live and how I live. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. You now know why that's the case. Why is that the case? Because you're disobeying this command to walk by the Spirit. Right? That, that's two plus two equals four. Right? That's not, that's not complicated. And if you're disobeying this command to walk by the Spirit, you now, know why what your chief, you now know what your chief problem is. I'm speaking to you pastorally, and I trust lovingly. You now know, I now know what my chief problem is. It is carelessness and laziness. It's all there is to it. That is all there is to it. It is carelessness, and it is laziness. My friends, we are in a war. Some of us need to wake up to that reality. We are in a war. And it is a take-no-prisoners war. And it is a war between these two principles that reside in us. A sin-desiring, a God-desiring. A self-pleasing, a God-pleasing. Two inclinations. And the command of Scripture is clear. It is to take up our cross and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is to walk by the Spirit to such a degree that we do not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the seventh truth I want to give you. When we walk by the Spirit, we subdue, this is the result, the desires of the flesh. You get it in the 16th verse, walk by the Spirit, and you will not desire the, gratify the desires of the flesh. So when we walk by the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are supreme in our lives, it pushes out slowly gradually, not perfectly or completely, that's glory, but certainly slowly and gradually pushes out the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, the desires of the flesh, they're against the spirit. The desires of the spirit, they're against the flesh. For these, that is the desires of the flesh are, and the desires of the spirit are opposed to each other to keep you. I think he's thinking of the desires of the flesh. They want to keep, desires of the spirit rather, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so as you walk by the Spirit, the desires, of the, the desires of the Spirit reign supreme in your heart. And as the desires of the Spirit reign supreme, there is no longer room for what? The desires of the flesh. We will not gratify them. We are kept from doing the things we want to do. So Paul's point is, simp is simple. His arithmetic is simple. There is such a thing as cause and effect. This is the life we've been called to. We've been called to walk in paths of righteousness. We've been called to grow in conformity to the likeness of Christ. We've been called, as we'll see next Sunday, to exemplify, show forth, manifest the fruit of the Spirit. We've been called because we've been prepared beforehand to walk in good works. And we now know that the key to this, this is the true nature of Christian liberty. This is true Christian freedom. And we now know it hangs upon what? Walking by the Spirit. 
And we now realize what? That walking by the Spirit requires effort on our part. Yes, our effort is a fruit of God's grace already working and active in us. But guess what, my friend? It's still your effort. It's still up to us to get off the couch. It's still up to us to engage in the conflict. It's still up to us to make good use of this book. It's still up to us to make good use of this church and the people of this church and the ordinances of this church. It is up to us to engage with the enemy day after day after day. And as we do that, oh, what a precious promise and what a great reality. You walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And now here's the eighth and final point. If we are led by the Spirit, if we really live like this, we aren't under law. Verse 18, and he comes full circle with this. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Same word is found back in Luke 18. There's a blind man who cries out to the Lord Jesus near Jericho. And Christ commands his disciples to bring him to him, to lead him to him. He doesn't simply say, hey, tell him how to get over here. He doesn't simply say, show him where I am. The man's blind after all. He tells them to bring him, physically bring him to him, the Lord Jesus. That is the word here. If you are led by the Spirit, if the Spirit is working in you as described in these verses to such a degree that, yes, the desires of the flesh never fully eradicated this side of glory, but certainly you're no longer gratifying the desires of the flesh. You're seeking to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Oh, you have this certainty. You are not under the law. You are not under the law, meaning what? You are free. You are free, meaning what? Going all the way back to the previous section, verses 13 through 15, you are free to deny the cravings of the flesh. You are free to serve others, the church, thinking of others ahead of yourselves. You are free to fulfill the law by loving others as yourself. And in so doing, you are free to keep the peace. Did you get the eight truths, principles, packed in verses 16 through 18? I said at the outset, I was after your mind. In the first instance, I was after your mind. I fear there may be some confusion, even in our midst, concerning what it means to walk by the Spirit, what it means to engage in this conflict. And I trust those eight principles, those eight truths bring some clarity. But I'm also after your heart this morning. I'm after your heart. The text begs an obvious question. It's a question we will seek to answer in greater detail when we get there in a couple of Sundays, verses 24 and 25. But, but let me try to answer it just briefly now, give you a slight foretaste. The question is this. Okay, I'm minding my P's and Q's. I, I get it all. I see how it all fits together. But I'm still not quite sure on the how. I, I'm, I'm still not quite clear uh, on what it is you're, you're calling me to do or how it is, how it is that this, this, this God-desiring, God-pleasing principle inclination, how, how it grows to such a degree 
that it pushes down and pushes out that which comes so easily and so naturally, that self-gratifying, self-pleasing principle. How? And Here's what I'm after your heart. The answer is simply this. You go back to the upper room discourse. One of the greatest passages of Scripture when it comes to our doctrine, our understanding of the Holy Spirit, and you read the upper room discourse, and at the end of it all, you ask the question, why is the Holy Spirit here? And what is it the Holy Spirit does? The obvious answer is what? He serves but one overarching purpose. It is to glorify the Lord Jesus. That's how you know when the Spirit is working. It's not when people start talking about the Spirit, because the Spirit never talks about Himself. The Spirit has come to talk about Jesus. And the Spirit has come to point us to the Lord Jesus. And the Spirit has come to glorify the Lord Jesus. He has come to make much of the Lord Jesus. Oh, and He's a Spirit of love in which grows this, this, this desire, this appreciation, this affection for the Lord Jesus. He heightens our appreciation of God's love for us in Christ. And as our appreciation for God's love for us in Christ grows. And commensurate, as our love for Christ goes, oh, the desires of the Spirit take sway. The desires of the Spirit take hold. And in that moment, he pushes aside, he pushes out the desires of the flesh. John Owen expressed it so well as follows. Listen to this phrase. Try to remember it. Meditate upon it later. Thoughts of love and sin put together. So thoughts of Christ's love and my sin put together. Make the soul blush. Is it that way with you? Thoughts of Christ's love and my sin laid together, put together, side by side, make the soul blush. John Owen goes on and he uses his imagination. He imagines, he imagines you know, he's doing this and the Lord Jesus is speaking to him and Christ asks him a number of questions. Here they are, the Lord Jesus did I leave glory to become a reproach for you? Christian, did he leave glory to become a curse, a reproach for you? It's a good question. Did I assume the form of a servant to endure humiliation for you? Did I suffer spiteful opposition for you? Did I bear the depths of hell for you? Did I experience desertion, deprived of the countenance of my Father's love for you? What more could I have done for you? When I had nothing left but my life, my blood, and my soul, I gave them all for you, that you might live by my death, be washed by my blood, and be saved by my soul being offered for you. How have you responded to my love? Do you choose your sin over me? Do you prefer your lust over me? By your laziness and foolishness, do you turn away from me? 
Oh, you ungrateful soul. Can you find another Redeemer like me? Oh, to have our hearts broken as we lay together our sin and Christ's love. And as we do so, the Spirit of God takes hold and the Spirit wages war against the flesh. And that inclination, that principle of love for God is quickened, stimulated, heightened, whereby love of self, the flesh, is suppressed. Well, this is our calling. This is our calling each and every day. This ought to be our prayer each and every day that Christ would be so lovely in our sight to such a degree that we walk by the Spirit, thereby not satisfying, indulging the desires of the flesh. I trust as Christians we do see Him in that light. I mean, using the phraseology of the Song of Solomon, He is altogether lovely, isn't He? He's altogether lovely in His character. You think of it, friend. You read the Gospel accounts and just... Take note of his character, his honesty, his honor, his faithfulness, his love of justice and his love of equity, love of truth, altogether lovely in his character, altogether lovely in his compassion. Read the narratives. He stretches out his hand to touch the leper, doesn't he? He doesn't run away from that woman suffering with the blood hemorrhage. He doesn't turn his back on the many sinners and other, others living on the edge of society who press all around him, but filled and motivated and stirred constantly by compassion for these lost sheep. Oh, he's altogether lovely in his offices. He's a lovely prophet. He speaks and proclaims the truth, nothing but the truth. Oh, in this day of lies and deceit, Oh, how lovely he is. Oh, he's altogether lovely in his kingly office. You think of the corruption of human government. What a travesty as we look around in our day and the history of humanity. You want a benevolent king? You want an all-wise king who reigns in perfect righteousness, whose decrees are absolute and perfect. There will be no miscarriage of justice on the judgment day, and there is a day coming in which righteousness will fill a new heavens and a new earth. Oh, he's altogether lovely in his kingly office. And he's altogether lovely as a priest, isn't he? Well, you think of him in his bloody, bloody agony there hanging upon Calvary's cross. And you think of that anguish of soul, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, it is lovely, it is lovely. And now he makes eternal intercession on behalf of his people, securing beyond any shadow of a doubt their ultimate salvation and that glory that will be revealed in the last day. He's altogether lovely in his words. Where do we begin? Where do we end? Perhaps best, his great promise, his great invitation. All who are weary and heavy laden, you perhaps, my friend, this very day, all who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me. Just come unto me, and I will give you rest. Oh, he is all together lovely. What that means for the Christian and this struggle, that's the starting point. Oh, we must see his loveliness each and every day and be enraptured with his love for us and grow in our love for him whereby we subdue the desires of the flesh. 
and for those unbelievers scattered in our number this day, oh, I pray you would see Jesus, that you would look to the Lord Jesus, that you would understand there has never been anyone like him, there will never be another like him, that God was manifest in the flesh, and in the Lord Jesus we have beauty in its fullness, truth in its fullness, justice and goodness in their fullness. And in the Lord Jesus, we have a more than sufficient atonement for sinners, sinner like you, a sinner like me. And the Father's invitation to us is simply what? Oh, look to the Son. Oh, look to the Lord Jesus. And in the Lord Jesus, the weary will find rest for their souls. In the Lord Jesus, the sinner will find forgiveness of sin. In the Lord Jesus, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl struggling with guilt for sin, condemnation for sin, will know peace with God and the hope of eternal life. Oh, look to the Lord Jesus this day. If you have not this, to this point in your life, my friend, I cannot point you to a better person. I cannot point you sticking with that terminology to a more lovely individual. I cannot point you to a greater nor fuller Savior than the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, our Father, may this be the day of salvation for some sin-wearied soul. May this be a real dawning and a day of illumination. And finally, he, perhaps she, is brought to a full acknowledgement of their sin, their standing before you in their desperate condition. And that truly, by the wooing of your Spirit, might see that there is forgiveness. There is great peace and joy and comfort and hope in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be so for our joy, for the joy of the angels of heaven, and for your eternal glory we ask it in Christ's most precious name. Amen.